0: In 2 Kings chapter 22, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And I'll ask you to bear with me as I come across what are some difficult names to pronounce. We're going to do our best here. 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning of verse 1, we read Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work, to prepare the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house." However, there, be no account, there, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand, because they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. How in the world does Israel lose and forget about the book of the covenant? That's about as wild of a question as to ask how in the world does the United States lose and forget about its constitution? Israel is not a congregation that misplaces their bylaws. That can happen. I mean, it seems kind of negligent, but that can happen. Like, wait a minute. We didn't have a lot of copies of that thing. Where did it go? Israel was a nation. They had land. They had a monarchy. They had a priesthood. They were a not just a nation they were a religious people. How in the world do they lose the book of the covenant? Most scholars believe that this book of the covenant that was found in the temple that had been forgotten was the book of Deuteronomy. There are a lot of reasons for that. But how in the world does Israel just neglectfully lose it? Josiah, think about it. A king at the age of eight. Imaging, do you think you're prepared to be queen of a nation? She shakes her head no. Eighteen years into his reign, he says... We need some spring cleaning at the temple. There's, there are damages to the building. It's a mess in there. We've got money lying around that we don't even know about. Bill, don't you wish we had that problem? Like, Go clean up the pantries and go check in the, uh, the sock drawer. I think we've got money stashed away back here. We need to clean the place up. We need to replace the doors. We need to put up some new signage. We've got to clean things up and make things a little bit more presentable. After all, this is our temple. They found the money. They cleaned the place up and they said, What in the world is this thing? And they found a covenant. that as a nation they had made with Yahweh, when He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, when He bore them as on eagles' wings, when He parted the Red Sea, when He made them to pass over it on dry land. They had made a covenant, and many, many, many years had passed And they had forgotten and lost it. See, the covenant was taken for granted. After all, they're God's people. They are Yahweh's own special family. Kind of like when Israel, hundreds of years prior, had said, we're going into battle. Let's grab that Ark of the Covenant. Let's take it on into battle. After all, Yahweh's got to be with us if we've got that. Taking for granted their status as the covenant people of God. They were defeated and the Ark was taken away. The covenant was simply taken for granted. They assumed that all was well because they're God's people they assumed that he would always be there everything would always be all right and when the t- the covenant is taken for granted suddenly you find that the holy became the profane now we hear that word profane and we think ooh bad words in hebrew culture profane simply means it's common it's not dignified enough to be considered special. The holy is the, the china that you keep put up and dusted and the crystal that you keep clean and keep the smudges off of it and the silver that you keep polished so they don't tarnish. The profane were the paper plates and the solo cups that are in the pantry. The holy became the profane. Worship becomes commonplace. We read throughout the books of the kings that in the northern tribes, after Solomon's death, after the division of the kingdom, that Jeroboam, the northern king, set up altars for worship on the high places where the pagans had worshipped their deities. Because... There's no need for our people to go down to the temple. I mean, they're leaving our tribes and going down to the southern tribes. Going down to Jerusalem. What if they like it there? What if they see the life's all right there? Let's just worship wherever. Worship becomes commonplace, and mystery becomes despised. I've been telling you for the last several weeks that paganism is awfully pragmatic. Whatever works, we'll use. This God this day, that God the next, this ritual, that ritual, just whatever works. And so mystery is despised because mystery is something that by definition can't be comprehended and explained so no longer is there really a need to to meddle with you know a holy place and a holy holy place it's the holy of holies it's the holy holy no longer is there really all that much interest in an ark of the covenant We just use what we understand and use what works. Israel found itself having taken its covenant for granted, having made the holy to become profane. Israel found itself like all the other nations, except they added a little bit of Yahweh in there. Yeah, they didn't want to abandon Him entirely. They just wanted all the other stuff that worked. So Yahweh then is reduced to being just one of the many. And therefore... The covenant suffered generations of neglect. It was in 1967, whether you love him or hate him or think he was a good actor in Bedtime for Bonzo, that Ronald Reagan said that... Liberty or freedom is never more than a generation away from being lost. Neglect the covenant for a number of generations. King after king after king leading Israel into deeper and deeper and more horrific sin. You've lost connection with the mysteriousness of the holy. You've lost connection with any specialness of worship. You've just taken everything for granted. And what you find is a young man like Josiah who says, what have we done? And when the covenant is read before him, he tears his clothes and he goes on to say, we have blown it folks the writer here says that Josiah was a king like his father David no he wasn't David's boy but he was in the lineage of David He reigned during the last half of the 600s B.C. Before him was an evil king named Amon. Before him was an evil king named Manasseh who sacrificed his own son to one of the pagan gods because if it works, it works. Before him was Hezekiah, a good king. a king who likewise could be said to be like his father David. Josiah was a contemporary of Jeremiah the prophet, Zephaniah the prophet, and others. You remember Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet, the one that has has a bit of a uh, melancholy personality. Cursed be the day that I was born. Jeremiah knew the totality of the situation. We are in a mess. We have blown it. So did Josiah. He rips his clothes and he begins a campaign of restoring proper worship to Israel. It's amazing. I want to I encourage you. Please do yourself a favor and this afternoon, read chapters 22 and 23. Just two chapters. You'll read about the life of Josiah. And you'll read about his reforms. I mean, he goes to great lengths to restore Israel. He was a great leader. He said, what in the world are all these idols doing in the temple? Get them out of here. What in the world have we done setting up all this... All this pagan stuff. What are we doing, trying to maintain some semblance of a relationship with Yahweh, and yet pursuing whatever else works, lifting up everything else as though it were as powerful as Yahweh, as though it controlled our destiny as much as Yahweh. Yeah, you know, there was there were a couple of things that characterized Josiah's life that I think. Or helps to us. The first is what we see about his heart. He knew wholehearted devotion. You might call that surrender. Devotion sounds kind kind of simple and easy. Kind of on our own terms. But he was fully and utterly devoted to God. His life was surrendered. His heart was surrendered. Like David... Could be said, a man after God's own heart. Josiah, we read, was like his father, David. See, he had a unity of intention, his will was one, his purpose in life was whole and complete. His loyalty was undivided. He didn't have a heart that was split up in a combination of competing motives. He wasn't one thing in this situation and another thing in another situation. He had a single heart, a single intention, what Wesley called a single eye. It was Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish existentialist theologian who um, actually the titled a book, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. When we were singing, we, read, we sang the word uh, pure, and Imogen leaned over and said, what does pure mean? And I thought, oh yeah, I'm preaching on that. It, it means one thing. It's just to be one thing. My example to her, I picked up my coffee cup real quickly. It's amazing how you can preach a sermon while you're just sitting there with the kids. I said, uh, "My coffee here, you see, it's black city." Yeah. I said, "That's just coffee. Didn't have anything else in it. It's just coffee. That's pure coffee. No cream, no sugar. A little bitter. A little got a little bite to it. You know, pure salt." is a container of salt that's just salt you take just a, a pinch of sugar and drop it in the salt and shake it up it might still look like pure salt but it's not pure salt it 's salt and Josiah's heart was one it was pure it was undivided his whole life was devoted simply and solely to pursue God. His whole being was surrendered. He was one thing. And that one thing drove him to deal with a number of things in a number of dramatic ways. Tearing down the idols. Destroying those things that had divided Israel's heart for generation upon generation. We can look to His heart and say, I want a heart like that. Whatever that might mean in my culture, whatever that might mean, not in our monarchy and ancient Near Eastern life, but whatever that might mean, today, now, for me, I want a heart like that. We can look not just at Josiah's heart, but we can look also at his life. You know, one of the, one of the uh, catchphrases or buzzwords or clichés of, of the, holiness, um, the holiness movement is holiness of heart and life. And when we look at the life of Josiah we find a life that is lived in accordance with his heart his life is characterized by this dynamic responsiveness Josiah's response when he tears his clothes is not wow man I I wish somebody would do something about that his response is not maybe one day we'll get back to where we ought to be His response is to act, to move, to do something. No, his performance is not perfect. You read those two chapters, you find, yeah, Josiah didn't have it all together. But his life was lived in accordance with his heart. They were not in conflict. It wasn't well, I've got this faith thing, but don't look to me for that obedience thing. The Scriptures speak of this as the relationship between faith and works. The two are intended to be in sync with one another. If His life and His legacy was similar to that of David then we could think of, okay, David's comparison or his contrast with Saul. David didn't have life altogether. He made some of the biggest, most blundering, idiotic sins. But his heart was able to be pricked. His heart was able to be moved. And his life was willing and able to be changed. It was David who cried out in the psalm, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It was Saul who, when he was convicted of sin, said, okay, yeah, that was probably bad, but please, please, let's go in to worship together before the people so that they'll see that everything's okay. Quite a different heart leads to quite a different life. Josiah's response is not just an internal brokenness and man, I wish we could do something. Jeremiah, hey, will you help us out here? Hezekiah, "We, we we need your expertise. His life. Characterized by this dynamic responsiveness, was if the Spirit has convicted, then fine, we're responding. We're going to do something about this. We're going to tear down those idols, we're going to restore proper and mysterious worship. We're going to make sure that that which God says is holy, we keep holy. The covenant needs to be mended. We'll mend it. I would like to tell you that Josiah lived happily ever after. I would like even more to tell you that Israel lived happily forever after. But in the end, just years, not generations, just a few years after Josiah's tragic death, Israel backslid, they returned to their syncretism of trusting in whatever, and they were led into exile in Babylon. Man, what an end. It seemed like a good ride while it lasted, but it came to an abrupt stop. He was killed in battle. Things are going well. We've got a good and righteous king. He's leading us in the right direction. Boom, he's gone. Boom, we fall back. Boom, we're in exile. Think about that. So was it ultimately for naught? Seems like such a disappointing end to the story. Was it all pointless? Was it all without merit? Was it just, well, it gave it a good shot? I mean, it's, it's like a team crawling back into the game in the ninth inning, homer after homer after homer, they're, they're coming back from a, from a six-run deficit. And they get the last guy up to bat, and all they need is a single, just a little blooper, because they got the bases loaded, but they're two outs. And he hits it right back to the pitcher, and the game's over, and they lost. I tell you, I hate those games. As a Braves fan... I'd rather just get slaughtered than, than late in the game. Like, we got to tell. Oh, it's over. Those are so disappointed. Was it all pointless? What's more, for our culture, Might we be too far gone? Our culture is very pluralistic. We might watch the news and think, man, everything that we've known, everything that we've trusted in, everything that we've kind of relied upon and taken for granted to be there, it's all just one by one being taken from us. We're trying to hold on to the sand in our hands as desperately as we can, but we just can't do it. Pack it up, say good riddance, and lock the doors, hunker down. What do we do? The testimony of Scripture is that Josiah's life was not worthless. The testimony of Scripture is not that his reforms and all of his effort and all of his attempts to ret- restore true worship of Yahweh in Israel it wasn't worthless. It wasn't pointless. Might have come to a tragic end, but there was meaning in it. There was dignity in it. Because there was something noble about a heart and a life like that. First, he's doing the right thing. Is doing the right thing not worth something in and of itself? Second, while the nation might not have been redeemed, certainly there were, there were many in the nation who suddenly saw the light and realized we have shipwrecked. We've got to do what we can. Even in that disappointing loss, at least somebody got some hits and somebody knocked in some runs, got some RBIs. There are some good things to take away. We hate moral victories. This is all... Almost one of those moral victories. yeah, it didn't hold and it didn't last, and it fell apart, but there was some good. Josiah could look up and see the way forward. The way forward for the nation, the way forward for his family and his legacy the way forward for himself as king and as the one who's at the ship's helm. And the way forward was, ironically, the way backward. We're headed in the wrong direction. We're going down the wrong road. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, the the quickest way ahead is to turn around sometimes because you're going in the wrong direction the way forward in the covenant is to fall back and get back in right relationship with the covenant Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the most simple things. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the most simple things. So what do we do? One thing is certain, we do something. We've got to do something like Josiah, there has to be some response. We can't just hear the Word and say, Yep. We've got to do something. We need to take some initiative. We need to engage the culture Yes, the culture might be lost. Yes, we might not see the days ahead as being very bright and quite what they used to be. But if we're honest with ourselves, what they used to be wasn't really nearly as bright as what we think they were. I mean, you think the 60s and 70s were great in our culture? What about the 20s and 30s? You want to go back there? Sometimes I tell Lindsay, I wish we could go back there, because those were the days where they would you know the produce guy would knock on your kitchen door and you'd let him in and you'd pick the produce you wanted. It was kind of romantic, but probably wasn't the good life. The one thing we can do, if we're going to do something, if we're going to find a way forward, the one thing we can do is we can offer hope. Because you may not be able to save the world. You may not be able to change the culture. But you can change a life. And you live next door to people who have no hope. You work with people who are as cynical and as, some of them, as depressed, as broken as you can imagine. And if the ship's going down, we can at least rescue some of the lives on the ship. In keeping this in mind, this idea of taking some initiative, engaging culture, I'm going to encourage you. I haven't encouraged you to do this in a long time, but um, uh, it's been wanting. I know Catherine does it all the time. She took me up on on this challenge months and months ago. Go to breakpoint.org. Trust me, you will benefit from this. Go to greatpoint.org. You can click on their commentaries. And every day, Monday through Friday, they've got just a three, three and a half minute commentary where they're engaging culture and offering Christian worldview in response. It may not teach you how to live in the culture, but it'll at least wake you up and realize some of the things that are going on and some of the shifts that are taking place. I encourage you to do that. That's at least some small step. But even there that's not changing the world. Because that's not changing a life. It may be strengthening your life, but listening to a Christian talk about Christian worldview is not changing a non-Christian's life. you and I still have the responsibility to offer some hope. To do something. To tear our clothes. So we've got to do the right thing. If the families are broken... then be a family that's not. If folks are filled with cynicism, then live out joy. Not patronizing ironic joy, but true joy, true peace. The big one is probably, you you probably work with, live next door to, have folks living in your home that feel that no one can be trusted, no one can be counted on. I'm not going to say this about myself like Paul did, but I'm going to say this about you like I think Paul would have. You can be counted on. You know, Paul said, you want to follow Christ? Fine. Follow me because I'm following Christ. you've got friends that think they can't trust anybody, prove that you're a friend they can trust. Really, I guess what all this is, is live the life of Christ. Live with a heart and life that are in sync with one another. Have some integrity in life, as Josiah did. The way forward is the way backward. We've got to get back to being the church, to being disciples. And that will offer hope to the world. Because disciples aren't smart Christians disciples are transformed Christians let's pray